As I walk through the valley where I harvest my grain, I take a look at my wife and realize she's very plain. But that's just perfect for an Amish like me. You know I shun fancy things like electricity. At 4.30 in the morning, I'm milking cows. Jebediah feeds the chickens and Jacob plows. Fool, and I've been milking and plowing so long that even Ezekiel thinks that my mind is gone. I'm a man of the land, I'm into discipline. Got a Bible in my hand and a beard on my chin. But if I finish all of my chores and you finish thine, then tonight we're gonna party like it's 1699. We've been spending most our lives Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, make me laugh. <laughs> yeah, see, that's that's pressure. That's pressure. It is pressure. It is pressure. That's like when Jon Stewart was on Crossfire. That That's like one of the most, it used to be one of the most view, viewed YouTube videos. Like, in this, like basically, they're like, come on, be a funny guy. He's like, I'm not your monkey. <laughs> <laughs> that's an, if, you've ne- if, any, if people have not seen it. It's amazing. I mean, he just is like, you guys are hurting, not helping, because you just parrot talking points. <laughs> it was Tucker Carlson and uh, Clinton's guy, Begalia. Yeah. It was, I mean, like, he just Stuart eviscerated the whole yeah. raison d'etre for that show. But one, of, one of many Stuart's many brilliant moments. Tucker Carlson, there's a waste of carbon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because John Pedorovitz on the I started listening to on the on the recommendation of our good friend Jeff Holska, the commentary podcast. And John Pedorovitz, I was listening to the first the most recent episode, so well, I have to I, I don't know what to say. I gave Tucker Carlson his first job at the Weekly Standard, but I mean he's joined the ranks, you know, confronting Noah Rothman on a show saying that the Syrian attack was not possibly done by the Syrians. It was done by somebody else. I mean, he's like, but it's just like, I, I don't know what to say about this guy. Anymore. You see where the Russians said that the British staged the poison attack in Syria. That's what the Russian, official Russian said. That's my point about this is. To which the British intelligence says, we couldn't have possibly. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So all that was kind of funny. Yeah. No, that was tough. Yeah. It's funny. You know, I don't, we don't try to be funny. It just happens. And if we try to be funny. Sometimes I try, but, well, but you're right. Usually not. It's, it, it's not it just good. happens. We don't usually try to be funny. Which brings us to. So the Mockingbird magazine is out. Those of you who have not subscribed, it's a great read. Um, always, it's always a good read. And right smack dab in the middle of the issue, page 48, we can find a piece called The Man of Sorrows Was a Funny Guy by none other than Bill Bohr. Do you put it in the middle so it gets missed? You know, like I, I think the middle is good. Because what do you do? You either open to the intro or the middle. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't open to the end. You don't open to the first third or the back two thirds. Like people open. Think about that. You open generally to the very beginning or right in the middle. Oh, they're looking for a centerfold. It's not there. Exactly. So we'll just read anyway. Those of you who wanted to see Bill as a centerfold, you should write that to Mockingbird. Suggestion okay. for... Next issue is the hits. That could be a, the big hit. And then you should follow in the way of antiquity. If you... <laughs> <laughs> that was that. kind of funny. That was funny. That was kind of funny, particularly for our classic scholars out there. Yeah, so it was... Yeah, I, I uh, in my introduction, I, we're supposed to write a little bio about ourselves, and I... I wrote my opening otherwise, Bill is usually witty except when he's talking about humor. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard to do. You know, yeah, yeah. it's funny because, uh, so 
we have Tier Hardy commenting from our Facebook feed. Bill's Magazine debut. Bill, the centerfold. I see a new podcast calendar coming soon. See, Bill, yeah. already. Tier, yeah. It's not my debut, but thank you anyway. But yeah. yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's the second piece he's written. Yeah. But, uh, so but, there we go. There we go. Thank you. Thank you for your, thank you for your belief in me, Tier. We like it. And uh, you need to get to the eye doctor really quickly. No comment. You know, it's interesting. Jerry Seinfeld was on Stern a couple, like, was most recent appearance. I think or maybe it was two appearances ago. He's talking about this. They were talking about Letterman and Larry David and what they had in common about stand up. And they said ba- both of them were kind of like more interested in the concept that they were making jokes in front of the audience than actually, uh, than actually, wa- actually like doing stand up. Mm-hmm. And that's why, by the way, Jason Michelle is watching while he drives. So, <laughs> and look, Jason, by the way, I don't know if you can notice uh, as you're, you know, barreling down the highway. That, but Bill has a polo T-shirt on, so oh, very, very yeah, classy. Yeah, don't look too close. Watch the road, Jason. My shirt is from Nordstrom's rack, and it was a Nordstrom shirt. And I'll tell you, these shirts—if I could buy—they're so. I have a tough time with fitting of shirts, and this one fits perfectly. So, love it. Anyway, he was saying they were saying that both Larry David and you saw this on Larry David's. I felt like monologue last time he hosted Saturday Night Live. In the middle, he's like, hey, I'm doing pretty good, huh? Like, I mean, he, like, he's so self-conscious. Right, yeah. And that's really different. That, and they're both comedic geniuses, he and Letterman. But there's something different about, like, stand-up where they, for some reason that, where Jerry Seinfeld is one of the, you know, the, I mean, like, his Netflix special where he's, like, using some of his original jokes from, like, back in the day. And all this stuff is just gold. I mean, like, yeah. it's comedic gold, but it's a really different, kind of thing you know it, it, it's a it's a different there you know, there are very 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 many shades sides of humor yeah no and i think it's uh, you know one of the things uh i i don't i don't watch as much television as you do and for few do <laughs> but um like if something's supposed to be funny if i haven't laughed within the first five minutes i turn it off and i think you know and again humor can be idiosyncratic but um but yeah, I think it's it's and it, what's interesting. A lot of the greatest comic comedian, comedy comedian, comedians can't speak today. Many of them are very are really smart and really troubled. Oh uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a I, there's a new um, uh, Gary San, Shandling, Gary San, Gary he just died. Uh, the Gary Shandling, yeah, Gary Shandling. Um, I haven't watched it yet, but I remember being when he died, people talking about him. And he kind of became a mentor to a lot of troubled comics. Oh, and yeah. Judd Apatow, he, you know, Chandler wasn't married, and Judd Apatow, like, was his closest friend. So they called, they used to call um, him, they were calling him the Widow Chandler. <laughs> yeah, no, but, uh, but, you know, he finally found some peace when he, uh, you know, I think he did meditation and Buddhism and such, but, uh, you know, Robin Williams, but, you know, Steve Martin is a very dark guy. I don't, you know, if you. His dad was. Yeah, a dick. Yeah, no. I mean, one of the uh, if you like if you like to listen to audible books, um, Steve Martin's Die Standing, or I think it's called Die Standing. I think it's what it's called, but it's kind of a memoir, and he reads it. Uh, it's worth it's worth listening to. Yeah, it's interesting. Mark Oppenheimer, friend of the show, uh, wrote a piece for Tablet about Jerry Seinfeld's Netflix special and how how not Jewish it was, and how like Jerry Seinfeld. There's not enough existential conflict like it's very i mean it's a really not it's your interesting piece like it's, it's a very kind of he's just reviewing the seinfeld special like it's a very interesting take on it yeah but um yeah and i think part of um what i tried to do in this article was uh uh talk a little bit about 
um, not only was Jesus funny, because ultimately we don't know that, but uh, talk a little bit about it. Funny looking. He had no comeliness, which was, you know, draw us to him. <laughs> yeah, but um, but exactly somewhat why even the approach to humor in Christianity is an interesting one and why even talking about Jesus. I think my part of my argument was, you know, we struggle sometimes with seeing Jesus funny is in part because of having trouble with the humanity of Christ. By the way, just for the record, Jason Michelle has chimed in and said the audience engagement is low in this episode. I guess we need Todd Littleton. This, no. this was, wait, so is this a dig at us, at us not paying enough attention to him? I don't know. Is it a compliment of Littleton? Or maybe, I hope you're in a traffic jam, Jason, if you're able to watch this much. <laughs> uh, Dan Brown said he gave Mary oh, Magdalene geez. his funny bone. Oh, you're so funny. Gosh. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. You know, it's, wow. It's, it's, it's one thing not to support Christian perfectionism. It's another thing to work actively against it. <laughs> this is a new phase of, of, of Jason Michelle's Lutheranism, everybody. It's really, he's going hardcore, as yeah. they said. So, yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, you talk about you have interesting in the article. You you talk about um, the scene from In the Name of the Rose where right. like this guy's like trying to hide Aristotle. Yeah, the, the is, lost the works com- on yeah, comedy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this exchange where like he's like, "This is going to kill everybody." You know, this is the worst thing. And that's a very interesting exchange, right? Yeah, and this idea that you know, if it, you know, someone as respectful as Aristotle, they if people will make people not take life seriously. Now, you know what's interesting. Um, the the problem represented in in that medieval scene, I think we have the, quite the opposite. I think part of the, I don't think people take life serious enough now. I think uh, everything has become um, not it, it's gone from irony to disdain. And sometimes you know even there's a kind of it, there's a there's a biting kind of humor even in you know I mean Sarah Huckabee just was uh, you know the obscenity that she is was just on and she makes these very biting sarcastic things that in some points would be funny but it's a disdain to try to not only discredit but dehumanize people or or we might actually take everything so seriously in the sense of like it might it might come full circle where like there's everything is so serious everything is so winner take all right yeah that you I, I don't know which it's hard to say like it's Which one, one of those, it is yeah it, could, it, it it because it is extreme yeah it feels yeah but it's hard to say which side of the extreme line it is well you know it's it's funny um uh, i'm i'm watching uh, all right Babel- this is going to be funny you no, said it's no, funny no it's ironic or no it's not ironic it's apropos sorry like, okay it's yeah, apropos this is apropos uh babylon Ber- berlin babylon or babylon berlin whatever that show's called i watch Babylon, Berlin. Yeah, and one of the things, the frenzy. There's a scene, you know, the you know, the life in Germany, 1929 is horrific. You understand it really, just in a few episodes, how the Nazis took over becomes, you know, very obvious when people are so desperate, uh, and desperate times, you know, desperate people take over. And there's a scene where there's this kind of it's a, almost like a music scene in the middle, where it's just this frenzy. And people just, you know, throwing themselves, you know, they're drinking and running and the dancing and the entertaining. And there's a sense where suddenly it has this kind of sinister, uh, has a sinister, almost nihilistic overtone of nothing really matters. So that's just party and party. But the people who are directing it 
are are really the ones who are behind the scenes helping you know everything move towards towards a tragic consequence. And I think there's a little bit of that. I think we both have this on one level. You have a lot of disinterest in public life among young people. You, people don't vote. Uh, and there's a lot to take, you know, I mean, we are entertaining ourselves in more ways than I can count. And yet at the same time, everything has has a lot of gravitas to it. And if, even small things are taken heavily. So I, I think you're right. It's And that's, um, I mean. I, I think you would have done well in the Weimar Republic. Who would have killed me first? I, I don't know. I just think you would. I, I think it'd have been your scene, man. Yeah, which would I've been hanging out? Well, where would I? Would I've been in Berlin? Where I would have been? I've, the I, other thing where I could picture the other place I could picture doing well again. This I think Paris in the twenties. I'd have done. Ah, uh, probably too. But like it, this depends on a lot of German, both a lot of German facility. But there's this study on Schleiermacher published by the AAR years ago called. The Romantic Triangle, which is looking at all these romantics. He hung out with these salons. I think you'd have done well there, too, in yeah. like the early 19th century in Berlin. Yeah, it's, it's only this 21st century I'm having trouble yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. I like this is <laughs> so, the only... The only it, I don't even know that I'm doing well here. I, I, I But, I, you know, this is... You know, that's what I got. Uh, but if anyone... Uh, yeah, if anyone has a time... If any of our listeners have a time machine, I'm, I'm volunteering. You know, what I love about Back to the Future is... <laughs> <laughs> Biff does exactly what I would do. I'd bet sports. I mean that that's what I would do. I mean like that's yeah, like okay, I'm going to Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean you bet sports. Like that's that's yeah, what that'd you be do. Good. That'd be good. Yeah, you know, yeah. get sports. <laughs> it's make like a tree and leave. You sound like an idiot when you say it that way. <laughs> So, by the way, I think Jason Shelley may be the first person ever accused me of having pure puritan mores. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyway, um I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you david babico ellis brazil david zoll sari graham peter steigerwald samantha blythe David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Michael Butera, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Andrew Stravitz, and Jennifer Underwood. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. So, so you mentioned several of the sayings of Jesus. And let me just lay this one on you. And by the way, let me just recommend a book that if you see, you can, I'm sure you can get it for hardly anything. Out in True Bloods. Uh, the Humor of Christ. Christ is, was a... I think well, I still have that book. Yeah, it's, it's a great book. But you know, matter of fact, it's funny how many people have taken ideas about True Blood. And turn them into little micro industries in Christianity. 
Um, but um, Alan Trueblood, a, fa- a really helpful guy, and it was a it's a well thought out and well researched book, The Humor of Christ, written in the sixties, I think. Alan Trueblood was fascinating. He, he wrote fasc- a lot of great stuff. Uh, yeah, this thing the company, the committed is a great book. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. F- I, fast- I, I, I like people who think they invented the small group idea. <laughs> <laughs> it helped Schleiermacher. Well, and John Wesley, too. Yeah, those, uh, those crazy pietists. Yeah. So this is from a blessed memory, the, the Reverend Father um, Robert Capon. He's talking about Matthew 18, and it's really interesting how he reads this. And I'll just say, you know, because I think it points to the point, the thesis of your piece. He says, I'm going to let Jesus' actual behavior govern my reading of these verses since he actively sought out the Gentiles and tax collectors he, adduce, he adduces here as apparent candidates for rejection. I propose to take his words as ironic. Consider, if you will, the dynamics of the situation. Jesus has been harping for some time on lostness, lastness, death, and the rest. But he's also acutely aware that his disciples hardly understand at all. He develops a strategy, therefore. He will sucker them into revealing their incomprehension by giving them as his own seemingly serious teaching, a string of propositions that will sound like nothing so so much as a retraction of what he's been saying. He follows up his story of a really indefatigable seeker of the lost, of a shepherd who risked everything to find a single stray, with a series of rules for limited forgiveness (laughs) that could have been written by the committee for the prevention of wear and tear on the righteous. In other words, the whole thing is a setup. What Jesus is about to say is so obviously at odds with what Jesus, with what he has been saying, that even apostolic dummies will see the incongruency. But when they try to respond to his obviously erroneous rules with emendations based on their inadequate grasp of what true forgiveness involves, they will be forced to recognize that they failed utterly to understand him. The gambit as clever as it is simple, goes like this. White, Jesus, black, the disciples. So he's making a chess game. White. So the shepherd seeks the lost unconditionally. Black. You don't really mean that as a practical advice, do you? White. Okay, so I'll make it practical. Forget the first story. The shepherd in the new parable gives the stupid sheep three chances to get found. Then he gives it up. Black. Hey, maybe that's a little tougher than you meant to be. How about he gives it seven chances? (laughs) White. Aha, gotcha. What about 70 times seven? And how about that? How, and how about checkmate? You thought I really didn't mean unconditionally, huh? And then he says, you know, the, the, and then he goes to um, the whole thing about Jesus says, and if they don't, if after the third time, you know, they don't, they don't forgive, treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector. <laughs> it's the whole ministry of Jesus. So I think that you point out several of the, of the exchange of Jesus. Like, I think Capon's on to some what you're saying. Like, this, you could imagine this time, it's like, because you talk about in the piece how one of the tough things to get about the humor of Jesus is we're the butt of the joke a lot, right. which is hard. <laughs> yeah, we don't like being the butt. No. We do not like being the punchline. Well, I, I think in that scene particular where, um, you know, how I've often read it, where they're trying to figure out, okay, you know, all right, I'm going to – this forget you, know, you can see Peter and the boys. Or okay, we got to see if we got this forgiveness thing, kind of like Capon sets up. And, and somewhere in rabbinical literature – now, this could be post-Jesus, but – the rabbis say how you were supposed to forgive three times. So I've often thought that Peter came up with the number seven by going, okay, the rabbis say three, Jesus is tougher or more open. So let's, let's double it. Let's add double one. and add one. <laughs> right. It could be something like that. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I raise, you know, Jesus says, I, I, uh, I, I call you. Yeah, I raise your seven, seven times 70. Yeah. 
It's a powerful thing. Yeah, I, I do think, uh, and I, I even wonder. I, I in the piece, I reckon, I, I, I wonder if, if calling uh, Simon Cephas was is just part of the inside joke. Like Rocky. Oh, this guy's <laughs> Rocky. Rock. Yeah, yeah, he's you're the rock. rock. You're the Rock. Yeah. He's no Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, he's no Dwayne Johnson. Um, and I do think that you know um, uh, there is this kind of sense of a divine comedy in the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Dante's on to something in the classic sense of it, because there's there's a struggle, there's this tragedy, there's a suffering, and there's this there's this amazing positive ending, you know, the redemptive ending uh, at the end. But uh, I, I think too, you know, one of the things. Now we didn't we this was our motto in Young Life. We didn't always live by it, but that the idea that we take what we're doing really seriously and try not to take ourselves too seriously. And um, like I said, we didn't always live that way. Sometimes we took ourselves way too seriously. But the fact is, that's what we kind of, we, we literally would talk about that. We would lead with that. I think if more folks in the church would think that way. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, um, I've referenced this book. I, I think I actually wrote the little blurb in the magazine for the book, um, Only a Joke Can Save Us. And it, it's really interesting. McGowan, I mean, this is such a genius book. I mean, it's not, it's a great read. It's not an easy quick read, but it's not, you know, it's not being in time. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's 250 pages, but it's fantastic. He says, you know, comedy always involves um, something unexpected, right? Like it, 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 there's always like tension. There's always incongruity, but he says, you know, for his theory, it's, he thinks it's the combination of lack and excess that you don't expect. It's funny because he talks about this scene, how death can even be funny. He's like, but it's hard to laugh at, a preschool teacher that poisons all her students. That would be unexpected, right? but it wouldn't be funny. Or Hannibal Lecter in Science Slams where he's found eating the nurse's face or whatever. Or eating some, he's like, that's unexpected, but it's not funny. But he talks about in uh, The Holy Grail, the, the Dark Knight, the Black Knight, as he's getting... St- Oh, okay. He's being killed. And yes. He's like, it's just a flesh wound. Wait, come back, yeah. P- Pansy. Are you giving up the fight? Yeah. And he's like, that is funny. And he's because it's like lack and excess, right? Right. Like there's this complete like lack of, of him with any vitality and an excess of his bravery, like this valor. It's just, and the, the lack and excess is really funny comes coming together. Right? And he thinks it's part of this is like he's working off Lacan and some other psychoanalytic people. And he thinks that we come into this world with all of us with a sense of lack, you know, like a birth. Birth is traumatic, a sense of lack. And then, like, society says, well, if you just play by the rules, we'll make up for that sense of lack. Like, and then you get frustrated and so you blow off with excess, like pro wrestling or heroin or, you know, going to Hooters and watching the game or being obsessive over Dungeons and Dragons. Ghost Sixers. Ghost Sixers, yeah. So, like, these, this strange comment, he thinks lack and excess is the, is the strange sort of kind of matrix of comedy and that's where he thinks hegel is like so christian in his it, because he makes everything about the infinite and the finite right so so the fact that like so he talks about the master slave dynamic at the beginning of phenomenology of a spirit and how basically the master when he finally gets the slave to admit you're the master he's more dependent on the than, the, the, than the slave in some ways because he needs the slave's affirmation of his masterness which makes him he seems like the most independent in his mind, but he's actually incredibly dependent at this point. I mean, that's part of the reason why Donald Trump's one of the weakest people in America. Even uh, though he's the most powerful man, he's got his button on the most powerful thing in the world, but his dependence on affirmation. Making weakness <laughs> great, again, is fantastic. 
So he talks about how, like, the at the heart of the incarnation, at the heart of Christianity for Hegel is this. He sees in Christ the symbol of the infinite becoming finite and becoming dependent. And the, so he thinks the whole thing is comic. So he's like, it's just like, he talks about some French filmmaker who's like, you know, who does this film of Jesus. The name escapes me, but... And at one point, he's about to shave his beard, and Mary comes in, no, don't shave it. I think you look better with the beard. He's like, and he keeps the beard, you know? <laughs> and, but that's funny, right? Why is that funny? Because he's the transcendent. And yet, if he's really going to be finite, he's got to think about things we don't think about. Should I keep the beard? Should I not keep the beard? And of course, the infinite wouldn't think about keeping the beard or not keep- <laughs> So he thinks that at the heart of this thing is, it's just so funny. Yeah. And that Christians that don't think it's funny have really lost the, the, the thing that's at the heart of the faith, that the incarnation itself is a funny concept. Yeah, it is. I mean, and and there's something like that infinite and finite. It reminds me of, I think it's John's version of the feeding of the 5,000. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, they, um, and, he's, and again, I'm probably going to merge the gospel versions here, but at one point it goes, all right, you give them something to eat. Yeah, right, right. And Andrew comes up, well, we got to, you can almost see Andrew go, hey, there's a kid here with five loaves and yeah. two fishes and I'm an idiot. You can almost see, right. you can almost see that. And I mean, you can see everybody rolling their eyes um, and probably laughing and snickering. And even Andrew goes, well, but what can this do? You know, he finally catches himself. What could this do to feed so many? And Jesus goes, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's interesting too. Like there's, he tells about this French filmmaker who tells the story of the of the wedding at Cana, the first miracle in John. And, but he has him at the wedding telling, you know, as he's explaining what the um, steward who realizes he's lost favor with his patron, his his master, you know, what he does, and then as he finishes the the thing. Jesus finishes the last glass of wine, and there's no more wine. <laughs> so what's Jesus do? I gotta give everybody happy. I'll do like the unjust steward, just right. Very, like it's a very like these things are are yeah. I mean it's just very. There's a, it's full of that. I mean I, you know uh, in the in the in my article, for me one of the funniest stories is Jesus uh, when Jesus is walking on the water and they're terrified, which we all would be, and you know Peter goes, "If it's you, Lord, tell me to come out now." Why didn't Peter say, "If it's you, Lord, just wave"? <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know, I think I think there's this this. Um, I mean, part of this constant infinite finite, both in the incarnation and in the incarnation and the hidden God bumping into people. There's a lot of a uh, lot yeah. of stuff. And way. the thing that I think is so interesting, cause as, I, as I've been thinking a lot about this week about this guy Mark Manus's book about Luther's theology of beauty, is that. There's something in the cross with lack and excess. Like you have the la- you have God dying, yeah, and the excess of our ignorance, sin, and like so. There is something like you said in the end. The, the divine comedy is this. I mean, the cross and the resurrection are both these moments of ultimate lack and excess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, I would end with a bar quote about grace and laughter. Yeah, that that's the closest thing. Although not all laughter is comic. That's what's interesting. Because no, it can be nervous laughter, and it's cultural and, too. So yeah, in some in some cultures, laughter. But know. something about laughter, it is spontaneous, and you can't control it. Like right. it, it, it's hard. So yeah, just like you know, when grace comes, like there's a sense in which it creates the response. So I think I think Jesus wept, and I think he laughed, and um, I think there'll be much laughter in the world to come. And he probably made decisions about grooming, all sorts of weird ones. <laughs> Take care. Some people call me the space cowboy Yeah
call me the gangster of love. Some people call me Maurice. Cause I speak of the pompatists of love. People talk about me, baby. Say I'm doing you wrong, doing you wrong. Peaches one.
gonna shake your tree. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it, love it all the time. Come on, baby, and I'll show you a good time.